Tonight's reading is from 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 5. David anointed king of Israel. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 33 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. David, like uh, I suppose a lot of a lot of people, spends his 30s uh, building his kingdom. It's hopefully God's kingdom too, but as we'll see tonight, sometimes he gets that mixed up. It's been a long time coming. Israel has been waiting on this kingdom since 1 Samuel 8, but now Saul is dead. All the would-be pretenders to the throne are gone. And David is the true king. And all the tribes of Israel come to David to ask him to be their king. And they say it in an interesting way that struck me as as I was thinking about tonight. They say uh, that they want him to be both shepherd and prince of Israel. Now, when you think about a powerful political military leader, shepherd is not always... (laughs) What, what comes to mind. But it comes to God's mind quite frequently. Psalm 78, verse 70 says, The Lord chose David as his servant and took him from the sheepfold, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, David shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. One of the gifts that God gives his people are shepherd leaders, uh, Jeremiah three fifteen. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who'll feed you with knowledge and understanding. So we're, we're kind of getting a picture here. When you study Israel, of course, in the New Testament, uh, the church is the new Israel of God. So you're getting you're getting a, a, a little snapshot or a foreshadowing of some of the principles for how God intends His people to flourish. And one of the things that that we see here is that God intends His people to be led by shepherds. I had opportunity to spend about two hours watching a shepherd in the Judean wilderness, and I saw him do four things that afternoon. First thing I noticed was that he knew all the names of his sheep. He really did. He, he kind of sang the names over the, over the flock like a song, and they seemed to just kind of bask in that song of their names. The shepherd would also go and gather stray sheep, And he had a little bell on their necks, and that was how he knew when one had gotten away. 
And then he made sure that they had food and water, which uh, this is a real desert, and so I, I never could quite see where he was getting the water, but somehow he found it and, and kept them alive. And the last thing he did was the guy was with the sheep. Um, he was kind of dirty. You could tell he slept with them. Uh, he loved them. Uh, he, he had sheep smell um, all over him. I've thought about that image a lot lately. Um, you know, our shepherding team has been thinking about that a lot, too, because one of the things that God seems to want uh, very badly for his people is that, is that we be well-shepherded. And God, after all, is the good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. And so he gives leaders who shepherd his people. And one of the things that uh, we're wrestling with is, what does that look like in a church like ours? What does it look like to be well-shepherded, to have a shepherd leader? In the Old Covenant, of course, you have a king who's the, the shepherd. In the New Covenant, uh, 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So it changes in the New Covenant. God gives elders or leaders who shepherd the flock. But here's, here's the problem in interpreting this. When Peter wrote that to the churches scattered all over the Roman Empire, they were meeting in houses, and they were about uh, 15 to 25 people. And so it was possible for a shepherd to actually know the name of his flock and know when one was missing and know how, where their spiritual needs were. Today, of course, we're in a very different setting, and even I consider ours a small church, but we still probably have 300 people that consider All Souls home. And we were sitting around the, at a meeting last month, and we're talking about, well, how do, you, how do we really shepherd 300 people well to the degree that you actually know their name? In other words, you actually know their needs, and you know what they need spiritually, and you know when they're slipping away, and you know how to comfort them, and you are with them. How, how do you actually do that? Sean, awesome job. Five minutes, that's okay. This is Sean's first night with the baby. It's going really well. You're doing great. You're doing great. So how do you do that? It seems like over the years, you, know, you can do these gimmicky things, you know, where, okay, we're going to set up a computer program, and every quarter I'm going to call you and say, hey, how are the kids? I don't think that is shepherding, is it? Well, there's a little bit of a clue in Ephesians 4, which talks about God gives leaders to the body, and their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so one of the things that I, I think has to happen, and it is happening, is that the shepherds identify shepherds and empower them to shepherd. And so, and I don't mean this in a, in a mean way. I, uh, I know I have a horrible voice tonight, so I probably sound like the Terminator. But um, the, I think what I would ask of you is that you come into our church, if this is going to be your church home, and if you're healthy enough, you don't come in saying, okay, how are you going to shepherd me here? I'm here. But you come in and you say, I wonder how I can shepherd here. I wonder how I can meet some needs. And I think of Noel Harb coming up, starting this little Bible study this summer. I think of Turner bringing all these people over to his house. I think of those of you that are walking deeply with people one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, consider that, because I think that's the application of the Old Covenant principle of shepherd leadership, is a priesthood of believers in which we all shepherd one another 
and I don't stay home wondering why no one's calling me, I go home and I figure out who I can bring into my home to shepherd. Well, David makes a covenant around this beautiful principle of being a shepherd king. And then our text says that uh, David is 30 years old uh, when he starts this run. And there are a couple of hints here that the writer wants us to see, and maybe prophetically, because he didn't understand all of this, but he wants us to, to somehow see Jesus in these passages, right? Because how old's Jesus when Jesus begins his ministry? He's 30. The age of a priest in Israel was 30. David is 30. David is both a king and a priest. Jesus is both a priest and a king. David comes to unite the tribes of Israel. Jesus comes to unite the tribes of Israel. There's all this foreshadowing that's pointing to the son of David, even in a little passage like this one. So David is a prototype of Jesus. Now, a kingdom needs a capital city. And so the next thing we read is, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Now, if if you've ever done a walk through the Bible in a year, if you ever read the Bible in a year, one of the things you probably notice is that you don't hear much about Jerusalem until uh, this point of the story. We don't have a capital city yet in Israel. So why, of, of all the cities, does David decide to choose Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel? Well, one reason is it's geographically right on the borderline between the north and the south, so that made sense. But there, there's kind of a mystery here, and, and I want to just kind of unearth it, and I, I'm not even sure what to do with it, but I saw it in my study this week, and maybe you can chew on it a little bit. If you go all the way back to Genesis 14, Abraham, the father of Israel, great, great, great something, grandfather of David and the son of David. Abraham follows God, goes to the promised land. He goes down to this mountain, and he's at this mountain, and this mysterious figure comes out of nowhere, almost like appears, and his name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is called the king of Salem, and he's called the high priest of God. And remember, at this point, you don't have any of that. And so this guy comes like out of heaven. He comes out and he blesses Abraham. And he's the king of Salem, which was the ancient title for Jerusalem. So David picks this up, and in some of the Psalms, David identifies himself as kind of a new Melchizedek. And then in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so you've got this mysterious storyline going on where this holy presence comes into the city of Jerusalem to ordain David's line. What do we do with that? I don't want to do too much with it, but one of the things that I think it suggests is that there is this ancient tradition that Jerusalem is a sacred place anointed by God for for worship. And if that's true, and if you read the Psalms, there's a lot in the Psalms about this idea that God uniquely dwells there and you meet him on on Mount Zion. If that's true, one of the things it could mean is that there are other places on the planet that are thin 
that are places where God is closer than others? I don't think I could prove that to you chapter and verse. Uh, But I do know that if you look at church history, thousands of people have taken pilgrimages to Jerusalem and other holy places because they felt that they could encounter God there. And they're often places that are hollowed by centuries of prayer and fasting and worship. It's why I go to the monastery in the desert every, every Lent when I can. Now, all I'm trying to suggest is that maybe the world is a little more enchanted than you think. And if you come to the conclusion that there are places like that, maybe you ought to go visit one. Well, the Jebusites are not very impressed with David. And their kingdom sits upon a hill. There's a steep hill. It was very hard to conquer. And so they taunt David. And, you know, taunts in Hebrew translated 3,000 years later don't have kind of the same effect. (laughs) but this is their taunt. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Ooh, you know, they're that (laughs) terrifying words. Well, what does he mean? I I think it's ancient Near Eastern trash talking. It's kind of like saying my grandmother could stomp you. You know, it's like we're going to put the people in the wheelchairs on the front line and take care of you. Well, David sends men up the water shaft. They take the city. He names it Jerusalem. It's already called Jerusalem, and he calls it the city of David. So I guess he has a right to do that. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. Now, what happens next is, I don't know. You could preach this so many different ways, but I want you to, let's just kind of wrestle with the tension in here because David is both being blessed while the seeds of his destruction are being sown. It's really odd. So David now is no longer a guerrilla leader. He's the leader of a legitimate kingdom. Hiram, the king of Tyre, it's a little uh, uh, island 50 miles up in the Mediterranean. He comes down, they start trading, they build an alliance. Well, if you've read the prophetic books, that's what brought Israel down, is that they started to rely on all these trading alliances. And so it starts here with Hiram, but but David doesn't seem to see the danger of it uh, just quite yet. Now, there, so there's kind of a, a double prophecy here. The positive side of it is that okay, here's Hiram; he's a Gentile, and now the Gentiles are coming to Israel uh, to encounter the true God. So it's a prophecy of the incoming of the Gentiles, but it's also a prophecy of the time when Israel will sell her soul to her trading partners. And both are present. Now, David sees all of this as God's blessing. The text says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. So David sees all of this as a good thing. And it was a good thing. I mean, Israel is flourishing, and he's building a house and all that good stuff. But here is the principle that is so troubling and that we ought to take seriously as the people of God The moment you start to experience success is the moment your soul is in the most peril. 
That's odd, isn't it? What we want for the most, oh Lord, please give me money. Please give me my, my, my company, make it, please. And once you get it, is when you stop turning to God. And you see this happen in David's life. You see it happen all through the Old Testament. God's people cry out, deliver us, save us. God saves them. Oh Lord, we love you. We'll never leave you. Five pages later, who's God? And then you have the discipline of the Lord. And you see this cycle over and over and over again. So, those of you that are tasting a little bit of success, good. I mean, we're not, you know, crazy here. But how's it affecting you? You know, some of you are on a roll right now. Some of you are hot. And you go through seasons like, like these. Um, it just seems like everything you touch turns to gold. You've kind of got this reputation as an up-and-comer. People want you to serve on their boards. They're calling you for advice. You're getting named in lists of important people. feels kind of good because finally people are realizing what you've got. What's that doing to your soul? Or maybe you're at a point where just a little bit of financial success has come along. You've got got a little bit of money. I mean, at least you did until Thursday. Um, (laughs) If you haven't checked your 401k. uh, And and you're feeling kind of good about that. And how, How does that affect your soul? I think one of the most spiritually perilous things that can happen to a believer is to become financially comfortable. And it totally changes your perspective. You stop risking. You start to fear losing everything. It used to be, you know, when you're just starting out, Lord, whatever, I'll do anything. Now it's, Lord, I've got 10 years to retirement. Don't. So how are you handling that? What are you doing with that? Well, David does another bad thing in here, and that he says he marries concubines, lots of wives. And way back in Deuteronomy, and David must have known this, Deuteronomy 17.17 says, the kings of Israel should not take wives, many wives. And David does. Now, what's happening here? David is kind of becoming the ancient Oriental monarch, like everybody else. That's what all the guys do in the ancient Near East that are running countries. So David takes all these concubines against the will of the Lord. David has 11 more kids. He, remember, he had six last chapter, so now we got 17 that we know of. And when you follow the names in these you know, ahead a few chapters, his family just blows up on him. So here you've got a young man in the first half of his life, and he really wants to serve the Lord. He's trying to serve the Lord. He's a great warrior. He seems to love the Lord deeply. But as as things start to work for him, as he gets the law degree and he gets out of debt and he 
he gets the 2.4 kids or, or whatever it is, the Volvo, I don't know, whatever you'd call it, he, something starts to shift a little bit. And he, he kind of forgets some of these little details like, you know, only have one wife, you know, those kind of things. And you can kind of see the shadows of disaster start to fall on him. You know that starting life well is not enough. A lot of people start it well. Ending life well is what counts. And if you start to make mistakes and take your eye off the ball in the early years, you won't end well. Well, David still wants to follow God. And we read that the Philistines have come down to try to conquer Israel one last time. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. They win the battle. The Philistines come back again. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear. Come against them opposite the trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Now, that's the last part of the story. Just a couple comments. I think there's a spiritual principle here. And we've, we've said this before, is that one of the ways to understand the Philistines' role is to see them as powers of spiritual oppression as symbols of powers of spiritual oppression. When you Remember, David is trying to move forward with God. He's making some mistakes, but he's trying to follow God. He's trying to establish a kingdom. He's trying to build a capital. He's trying to follow God. He inquires of the Lord twice. He's trying, he's trying, he's trying. For the first time in hundreds of years, Israel is united as it's supposed to be. The prophecies are in place to be fulfilled. And what happens the very moment Israel gets all the things that she wanted, a king, a capital, unity, power, alliances, just when it gets going, what happens? The powers march against them. And I think that's true in our spiritual life as well. Just when you've made a breakthrough, just when you've really pressed into something in healing, just when you've had that that breakthrough moment in your marriage, just when you've worked through that personal issue or you've gotten your business over a hill or you've broken through a financial problem or you've had this spiritual renewal, you finally met the right person or you finally said goodbye to the wrong person, whatever it is, and you get there and you're thinking, praise God, I'm going to roll now. I've been following. The blessings are going to come. Here we go. Guess who shows up? The Philistines. Ready to take you out. Well, what does David do? Two things. He inquires of the Lord. He doesn't panic. He inquires of the Lord. Saul wasn't doing much of that. And that's one of the things you need to do when, you start to, when you're feeling oppressed by spiritual powers. You don't panic. You don't react. You don't get on Facebook and post about it. You inquire of the Lord. Lord, what happened? I thought we were in this place in our marriage and on that Dinner last night, 
It all fell apart. Lord, I thought I was walking in your will. I, we were moving, and then what happened? You don't react. You inquire of the Lord. But then notice the second thing that happens. In the second battle, God gives him this goofy strategy. You know, don't go around the front. <laughs> Poor Sean. Sean, you're, you're going to make it, buddy. <laughs> this is their first night. They're going to do good. Um, you, you, God says, I don't want you to go straight to him. I want you to go around behind the trees, and I'm going to send this, this army wind thing. And when you hear the trees all rattling and ruffling, then you attack. Well, I think the principle is... <laughs> That's a beautiful sound. I had an old friend once who said, I'd rather hear a baby crying than a saint snoring in the puke. So I like that. I like that. But this is important. Let's not miss it, and then I'll shut up. Um, The way God tells you to deal with the problem or the opposition may not sound normal. It may be counterintuitive. I mean, isn't that kind of the whole Bible thing? Like weird? I mean, just different, just not normal. And I had a friend I was talking to, and she's got a particular big problem. And she said, I've been talking to all my friends and trying to get all their advice. I'm trying to weigh it together and see what I should do. And I said, you know, let's just know. You know, that's the exact wrong thing to do. Inquire the Lord. Listen for the strategy, and even if it's odd, do it. Let's pray.